0: Listener
1: production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. I'm Sasha Barbagat. Most of us are too young to remember the Cold War, the standoff between the Soviet Union and the US and its allies from the late 40s until the early 90s. It's only now we're starting to discover what truly happened during those years of conflict and espionage. Well, the latest series in the Secrets We Keep podcast is called Nest of Traitors, and it follows listener investigative journalist Joey Watson's three-year journey to find a spy who betrayed Australia during that time.
0: I think that at least some of the suspected moles um, were quietly retired. They were sort of let to go, as one spy puts it, dispersed around the Commonwealth um, of Australia. I get a list of suspects. Um, I find out that at least one of them is still alive. And I go after them.
1: That gripping new series launches today and we preview it with Joey in the second half of the podcast. If you love your true crime docos or spy thrillers, you are going to love Nest of Traitors, let me tell you. But first off, let's get into the headlines. Katrina Blowers is here. It is Thursday, February 1st. Hey everyone, well the heads
2: of five major tech firms have been getting grilled by US Congress over the alleged harm to children caused by their platforms. At one point Meta's CEO Mark Zuckerberg stood and turned towards the of family behind him and apologised for their experiences dealing with child abuse. Now, this audio is a little hard to hear, so rest assured we're going to tell you exactly what he said straight afterwards. Would you like to apologise for what you've done to these good
1: people? I, I, I'm sorry. So- Yeah, so it is hard to hear at the start because Mark Zuckerberg actually stood up and turned around. So he wasn't on mic when he was making this apology, but the part that is audible, he says, it's terrible. No one should have to go through the things that your families have suffered. A pretty strong statement there from uh, the CEO of Meta. Now, the hearing is titled Big Tech and the Online Child Sexual Exploitation Crisis, and it promises to examine and investigate the plague of online child sexual exploitation. Zuckerberg, along with Linda Yaccarino of X, formerly Twitter, Zi Chu of TikTok, even Spiegel of Snap and Jason Citron of Discord are all being questioned over what they're doing to make their platforms inaccessible to child sex offenders.
2: I've been thinking about this and going back and forth on this in my mind, Sasha, you know, at the end of the day, I've been wondering, well, how responsible are the creators of these platforms? Because they have provided the tool. It's kind of like, you know, the US gun debate where you go, is it the gun or Mm. is it the person holding the gun? But as more and more evidence comes to light on what these platforms actually have failed to do, knowing, you know, the the potential. I guess at the beginning when they didn't realise the potential, that might be one argument. But when they knew and did nothing, like for example, this whole lawsuit came about because of a Facebook whistleblower and he found that when harmful posts are reported, only 2% were taken down. Like that's not okay. And I think that's why that apology will be so powerful to so many of those victims today.
1: And one of the other uh, big kind of fiery moments, we see that a lot in these uh, US Senate hearings where there's kind of this ability to grill whoever is uh, speaking. And in this case, it was Mark Zuckerberg. Ted Cruz, uh, who's a senator from Texas, was asking him about this warning screen that apparently comes up when a person on the platform was searching for hashtags commonly associated with child sexual abuse materials. It basically said, oh, this material is sensitive. Are you sure you want to see it? Giving people the option to click through and to see what has been put on that hashtag. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg said, Mm. I'm going to personally investigate this. So it just goes to your point, Katrina, that yeah, it feels that it is a failure to act on something that we know is happening as opposed to going, oh, we didn't know and we're going to fix it. And I think time's running out on these platforms. We saw here in Australia, the eSafety Commissioner has really been fighting for more accountability from the big social media platforms. And in October, Finder X, $615,000 for failing to respond to concerns about child sexual abuse material online. Uh, and they've been actively pressuring the platforms to lift their game. So. The problem is, though, we need them to act. So the pressure exists. Now we need to see action. Millions of songs by some of the world's biggest artists are being pulled from TikTok by Universal Music Group after the two failed to finalise a new licensing agreement which expires on January 31st. Now, I say expires because it is still January 31st in the US, even though it's Feb 1 here. So what that means, the likes of Post Malone, Lady Gaga, Billie Eilish and... Taylor Swift will no longer have licensed songs on there. Universal says TikTok is paying just a fraction of the royalty price that similar platforms cough up, despite having soaring revenue and an increasing reliance on music-based content. The label also accused executives of using bullying and intimidation tactics during negotiations. TikTok has responded. It put out a statement on its website saying it was sad and disappointed it couldn't reach a deal with Universal, Um, also accusing the label of putting its own greed above the needs of its artists and their fans. And TikTok went on to claim it has been able to reach artist-first agreements with every other label and publisher. So this is really big, Katrina. And, you know, it doesn't doesn't mean that these songs won't find a way onto the platform through user-created sounds, but to pull the licensed versions is a massive move. And we just know how big TikTok has become when it comes to discovering music for young people. I mean, there are so many examples lately. Ocean Alley's Confidence is one. Um, I don't know if you saw this, but it blew up towards the end of last year. This song came out back in 2017, 2018, and uh, it's all of a sudden in US feeds and people going, wow, this song's so great. Um, The one that's going off lately, though, is a cover of Murder on the Dance Floor by Royal Otis. We've got a bit here. I was just having a massive boogie to that while that was playing. But yeah, this one's going off at the moment. Little Australian (laughs) band and um, yeah, it is popping off and this is how these bands are getting discovered and we also saw it with Dreams by Fleetwood Mac. So this is an old song that goes viral on the platform and then all of a sudden it's top of the charts again. So yeah, big move, Katrina. What are your thoughts? Well, and one that we're going to
2: notice, you know, as of today presumably because that, I mean, talk about going down to the wire with negotiations. That deal has now expired I wonder, because there was a similar argument a little while ago now, a few years ago now, with gyms and hairdressers being able to play um, Mm. music. And so uh, then they came out with a a sort of a workaround where they started playing like these elevator music versions of big hits, (laughs) which was pretty hilarious. But I mean, Taylor Swift, what a huge artist to not have the licensed versions of her songs on the platform. So yeah, I think those executives might have a little bit more negotiating to do. Well, it looks like the states are preparing for a fight over public school funding, demanding the federal government double its commitment. Labor announced yesterday it would fully fund WA public campuses by 2026 as negotiations continue with New South Wales, Victoria, Queensland, South Australia and Tasmania. It's been revealed by nine newspapers that the education ministers from the five states have written to their federal counterpart demanding a doubling of the proposed 2.5% increase in funding to 5%. Now, that would bring the proportion of federal funding to 25%, which is more than what's considered the amount needed to meet all students' needs. Now, almost all of Australia's public schools are underfunded, while private schools are overfunded under the current funding agreement, which just doesn't seem fair. And we covered that huge gap between private and public school funding and performance in Friday's episode.
1: And finishing up with a very happy birthday to Medicare, which is turning 40 today. The reincarnation of the Whitlam government's Medibank was brought in on this day in 1984, at a time when medical bills were the number one cause of personal bankruptcy. While it's revolutionised healthcare in Australia, there are growing concerns about the effectiveness of the little green card four decades after it was introduced. Now, Katrina, there's a lot of um, uh, profiles in the papers this morning talking about Medicare and all of them seem to focus on what needs to happen next I think there's this understanding or this agreement that it's not keeping up with the demands of modern Australia so some of the improvements being suggested to make sure that does happen uh, including dental care which is a huge one my husband got a twelve thousand dollar dentist bill and we just had to use our savings oh. we just yeah it was insane we just had to we just had to go well you need this work. We can't have you with teeth falling out of your head. We're going to have to pay it. And there goes 12 grand in in the blink of an eye. The fact that it's not included on Medicare is bonkers to me. Um, some other suggestions, paying less for blood and imaging tests, which are also super expensive and often out of pocket for the majority, and also making it cheaper to see a GP. So happy birthday, Medicare, but work to do. That is a big one for sure. And you get, um, if you, um, need to renew your card or
2: you just want to renew your card between now and the end of the year, you get these special limited edition Medicare cards. So. Mm. Wow. I mean, amazing. No, it is cool. It's it's an awesome system and you get a shiny new commemorative card.
1: Well, maybe I'll have to go check my um, expiry date now to see if I'm due for a new one. Hey, Katrina, thank you so much for joining us for the headlines today. Next up, it is our deep dive, getting a preview of the brand new series of secrets we keep, Nest of Traders. Today, you're going to meet Joey Watson, an investigative journalist who has spent the last three years hunting for the spy who betrayed Australia. He found out that during the Cold War, they had turned to work for the enemy, leaking top secret information from Australia and compromising ASIO, that's where they worked, from the inside. But the truth had been buried so he went after them. For those who need a refresher, the Cold War ran from 1947 to 1991 and saw the Soviet Union in a global standoff against the United States and its allies. It's been the feature of movies like the original James Bonds, Doctor Strangelove and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. And Joey Watson's brand new podcast is called Secrets We Keep, Nest of Traitors. He joins me now. Joey, welcome to The Briefing. Look, to start off... How did this story come onto your radar and what made you want to pursue it and turn it into a podcast?
0: Well, Sash, for as long as I've been a journalist, actually for as long as I've been a human life force, I've been obsessed with spy stories. And as I got into journalism, um, it became a kind of focus of my inquiries. And that's partly because these are very powerful institutions. They operate in the shadows and they're worthy of journalistic scrutiny and public inquiry, but also because they're really cool stories. They're full of action and mystery and um, everything you could see in in a spy thriller, but in the real world, it becomes even more strange. I spent a lot of time as a journalist pursuing stories to tell about Australian spies, particularly during the Cold War. And as I did so, I started to notice this pattern. So many spy operations in Australia, particularly during the Cold War, had ended in failure. So I started asking around for a theory as to why that might be, and that's when I heard that during the Cold War, an Australian spy had turned and worked for the enemy, the KGB, effectively sabotaging Organization from the inside. So, about three years ago, I set out to find them, having no idea what a weird and wild journey it would become. And that's uh, what became Nest of Traders.
1: Yeah, wow. And I get your point about there's something about spies, and it's so secretive. I know whenever ASIO does recruitment drives, like there's this uptick of interest because people are like, wow, like what do spies do? And the fact that you've dug deeper into this particular story is truly fascinating. How did ASIO find out about this supposed mole?
0: That's a a very interesting question, and it's something that dwells over the whole podcast. But it centers around something that didn't actually happen during the Cold War, but immediately after. And it didn't happen in Australia, it happened in the uh, capital of Latvia, in Riga. Um, Europe, after the Cold War in these early years in 1992, was completely awash with uncertainty. And this dude, this old dude wearing an overcoat, shows up uh, at the door of the British Embassy. He's got a bag, a plastic bag full of of uh, groceries, there's some salami in there uh, and he he gets uh, an introduction to one of the diplomatic staff and from below the groceries he retrieves a sheaf of documents. This guy's name was Vasily Matrokin and he had been an archivist at the KGB, that's the feared spy agency of the Soviet Union, for some 40 years and over the course of those 40 years he'd started smuggling out um, handwritten notes of all of the KGB's information, all of their files in his shoe and hiding them under the floorboards of his log cabin in the outer suburbs of Moscow, mm-hmm. there was like 11,000 pages. They got smuggled out to wow. the UK. But within those pages was a some information about Australia and it provided pretty much incontrovertible evidence that Australia had been penetrated. There was a mole inside ASIO and they were sabotaging the organisation from the inside. I later found out that that was actually not the only clue, the only tip-off that ASIO got. There were other clues that happened earlier um, during the Cold War, and they weren't necessarily followed. And that's one of the lines of inquiry that I take.
1: Mm, Wow. It's like a movie, but real life. It's (laughs) amazing.
0: It is. Matrokin, that whole story is almost worthy of like a whole podcast series in in itself. Maybe the next one. There's a lot of picking and choosing.
1: So you did actually speak to the main suspect of this infiltration, an ASIO translator who was taken to court. Court by the Australian Federal Police. What did you learn in that part of the investigation?
0: Right. So after they got Matrokin's tip off, it was believed that ASIO wasn't really in a position to investigate itself. That it would be or to be accused of being investigating itself. So the Australian Federal Police were actually brought in to conduct uh, an investigation of ASIO to try and find the mole. Um, the title of which was Operation Liver. So liver is like the. Or, I'm not really that good with medicine, but it's a it's the it's the uh, uh, organ that um, cleanses the blood. Yeah. Of Coxins. Yeah. Um, so like poetic imagery there. I'm not sure whether it was on purpose. <laughs> Probably. An- anyway, some 200 cops were assigned to the mole hunt, some of the best uh, AFP cops, some of the best resources. And they built a profile of the mole around two clues that had come from Matrokin and other tip-offs. The mole had a five-letter surname and a wife who also worked for ASIO. That's how they ended up fingering, George Sadil. George S-A-D-I-L. He had a five-letter surname. He didn't have a wife at ASIO, but his sister had been a respected operator in the organization. He had been a Russian translator. So not necessarily a spy, but a Russian translator at ASIO since the 60s. And uh, yeah, he um, basically became suspect number one. Um, I met him. I spent a lot of time with him. That's the setup in episode one. We meet for Poroshki and coffee. Poroshki are like a Russian steamed bun. They're delicious. They're absolutely delicious. They're really, really good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a big Poroshky fan If nothing else out of this podcast. (laughs) But what we find out is that the case against him, it didn't really stack up. And I come to think that it might have actually just been a distraction.
1: Oh, okay. Mm. All right. Now you did talk to a bunch of ex-spies right around the country to find out how the infiltration actually occurred. What did you get from those spies that you managed to talk to?
0: Two things. uh, And they're sort of woven throughout the podcast at different turns. And it is a bit of a topsy-turny journey. But one is that ASIO during this era had fallen into a state of quite bad dysfunction. There was um, serious concerns about like an overwhelming drinking culture. There was um, nepotism. There was like victimization of junior staff by management. It had become what I'd heard was a sort of paramilitary style culture. And and learning about that, I started to see the sort of environment that this mole might have been operating in and why they could have gotten away with it. The second thing I learned is that there's a wide held theory and I and I think that I kind of lay out the evidence for this and I think that there is a lot of evidence for this, that this mole was not operating alone, that indeed there was more than one and there was a cover-up.
1: Okay. Tell us about visiting... Woomera in South Australia. So it was there, I understand, that you learnt about Australia's role in Cold War intelligence and also nuclear weapons testing. Tell me what you found out there.
0: That's right, Sash. So I'd been presented with this situation where for some reason, the KGB were sending some of their best spies to Australia. And I mean, you know, Australia's great, like we've got the beaches and koalas and all that sort of stuff. But I did kind of wonder why. And the, the Cold War was fundamentally a battle between the US, which we were allied to in the West, and the Soviet Union. Um, So what was the interest in Australia? And I heard a theory that the answer to that might lie deep in the outback in South Australia. So about seven hours drive, I took a seven hour drive um, north of Adelaide to Woomera, which was set up in the 40s, in the late 40s, basically to test and develop missile technology firstly for the British, then later the Americans came in and started using it as well. It's like one of the uh, strangest places I've been to. It's still active today. You're not allowed to leave the highway, although you can legitimately visit the town. There's a rocket park in the middle of it with relics of all of the missiles that had been fired and developed there. An area, uh, at, and during the Cold War, it was over 200,000 square kilometres, was just sectioned off. Like larger than England itself, was sectioned off for missile testing, almost like a third of the whole state of South Australia, purely for this technology. And that wasn't all that went on there. I found out in the far reaches of the Woomera Prohibited Area, that's that huge section of South Australia, there was atomic bomb testing. I found out about Uh, a U.S. surveillance station that was set up there at a place called Narunga, and I tried to drive to it about 15 minutes south of the town of Woomera. And all of this stuff was really aimed uh, at one enemy. It was aimed at the Soviet Union in the eventuality that if war broke out, this is what we'd have in the West's arsenal. And as a result of Australia giving its land, it kind of like fell into this alliance called Five Eyes where we were really integrated with the US and the UK in this global intelligence network. And that's why the KGB came here. It's all about what the stuff that was going on out there.
1: Yeah, I think people would be surprised. You know, the Cold War happened before you and I were born, before most of our listeners were born, I'd say. I still think, though, people would be surprised to know that Australia played such a role. And they talked a lot at the time about the threat of communism, and it was very much news here in Australia. But the fact that these facilities were being set up in outback towns is it's news to me and it's so interesting.
0: Yeah, that's true, Sash. And um, it's interesting, you know, this is uh, uh, in some ways a story about history. It is a story about the Cold War. But when I set out on this investigation, I had no idea that Russia was going to invade Ukraine and the tensions at the heart of this story were reignited. And that has not only does it hang over every episode in a kind of like poetic sense, it's like, you know, the the future is in the present, but it actually has real, very real implications for the shape of the investigation, who I'm able to reach, who I'm not able to reach and how I'm able to reach them. Sources dried up in some ways, but in others, they kind of opened up as a result. So um, yeah, it's a history piece, but it's very much resonates in the in the world today.
1: Yeah. Look, one last question: Did you find the suspected mole?
0: I can't give away the ending. I'd be <laughs> I'd be ruining the whole um, I'd be ruining the whole thing. But um, as I mentioned earlier, I do come to suspect that there was more than one. I uh, think it revolves around a report um, that was commissioned by the Keating government, and I think that at least some of the suspected moles um, were quietly retired they were sort of let to go, as one spy puts it, dispersed around the Commonwealth um, of Australia. I get a list of suspects. Um, I find out that at least one of them is still alive and I go after them.
1: Okay. Well, as you've explained and as we'll find out as we listen to Nest of Traitors, the investigation unfolds. You've got all these surreal encounters. The Melbourne intelligence officer whose apartment is full of orchids. Yes,
0: spies love orchids. That's explored in the podcast. Okay, They rely on deception Uh to survive.
1: Right. (laughs) Uh, Also the time you find an ex-KGB spy sharing a video of the honey badger as in the former bachelor contestant.
0: (laughs) I won't even try and explain that one now.
1: (laughs) But thank you for taking the time to explain this to us. And uh, I for one am so excited to listen. Thank you, Joey, for joining us. Thanks
0: heaps, Sash. Cheers.
1: That was listener investigative journalist Joey Watson and the latest series of Secrets We Keep, Nest of Traders, is out today on the listener app and wherever you listen to your podcasts. That is all for The Briefing today. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure you check back the Savo at 3 for another episode and be sure to reach out to us if there's a story you'd like us to dig deeper on or if you'd like to share your thoughts. The best place to do that is on Instagram. Just search The Briefing and send us a DM. I'm Sasha Barbagat. Thanks for listening. Listener.